The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. Have we become numb to the needs that we see around us day to day? Think about it. In our world today, we know that there are needs that are ginormous and they're huge. And quite honestly, we don't know what the solution to them is. Think about world hunger with people that are literally starving, that there needs to be a solution or people will die. There are tons of villages around the world that don't have access to clean water and because of that are suffering from many diseases. That's a solution, that's a problem we would love to have a solution to. Even around the world we hear about wars, we hear strife and tribulation and all these problems and then we see it also back in our own hometown, our own area. We see that poverty is on the rise, Homelessness is a real thing, and we look at these huge problems and we say, what in the world can we do about it? And when we feel there's nothing that we can contribute substantially to it, we just numb it. We kind of put it aside because we want nothing to deal with that situation at all because we don't feel like that we're worthy of doing anything substantial. It's very real, though, particularly thinking about poverty and homelessness right here in the Chambersburg area. There was a recent study done, done by United Way in July of this year, so very recently. And they did a study and found that in Franklin County, get this, 30% of individuals, 30% are struggling financially. 30%. That's a third of the population of Franklin County. Of that 30%, 10% of those fall within what we would say the federal poverty um, status, if you will, meaning that those 10% are eligible for help, support, and aid through our government resources. However, the 20%, double the size, are above that threshold and therefore cannot receive any type of aid. And it becomes very, very difficult. They are not able to pay their bills, they're struggling financially, and it is a real problem. What that looks like in Chambersburg is 44%. 44% of individuals, either one of those categories, are struggling financially. And we look at a situation like that and we say that is beyond our control. How in the world can we meet that kind of need in our city? And where in the world did it come from? How did it arrive here and it does not seem like it's getting any better? In fact, it seems like it's going from bad to worse and spiraling out of control. Do we remain numb to those things because we feel like we don't have the solution? You know, back in 2,000 years ago in Jesus' time, they had similar troubles and similar things that felt like they were spiraling out of control that put real decisions in their path. Back 2,000 years ago, Jesus and his followers were really doing an incredible work to the point that Jesus sends out 12 of his disciples in twos, in pairs of two, and says, I want you to go out to the nearby cities. I want you to teach about the kingdom of God. I want you to tell the hope of, of what God's plan is. I want you to go to heal the sick. And they go and do this, and they see an incredible thing happen. Multitudes of people come out. People are healed. There is life change happening. But all this is abruptly brought to an end when John the Baptist, who was a person that was also doing ministry before Jesus Christ came on the scene, John the Baptist is imprisoned by a guy named Herod. Herod didn't like uh, the Jews. He didn't like what John the Baptist was doing. So he imprisoned him. And Herod was, shall we say, a little bit sick and perverted. And as a gift to his niece, he murdered John the Baptist. As a gift to his niece, this guy had major problems. And when this news came back to Jesus and his disciples, going from, wow, we are seeing wind, we are seeing a hope, to now all of a sudden, their dear friend 
has been imprisoned and murdered, they were devastated. They were deeply grieved by this. And so what Jesus does is he gathers his disciples back to where he is at, and he says, we are going to go and get away from this, partly for their safety perhaps, but more so to get away to grieve, to have time to rest and recover from this ginormous blow that they had all taken. Fun fact, in our lives, there are places where we need to step aside and get rest. It does not mean that we abandon altogether, but there are situations where it requires us to step aside, get rest, recover, and then come back. If Jesus needed it, and Jesus thought his disciples needed it, then we definitely need it as well. So Jesus tells his disciples, we're going to gather our things, and we're going to head over to a different part around the region of the Sea of Galilee. We're going to pick this up here in Mark chapter 6, where it says this, and they went And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. All right, let me set the stage a little bit for you so you can kind of get a picture of this. And literally, I want to show you a picture. I'm not taking you back to the schoolroom, but I want you to see this. I've got a map up here of the Sea of Galilee region, and I want to put this in perspective and bring it back home so you understand what's going on. If you look on the west side to the left of the Sea of Galilee, kind of in the middle, you'll see an area called Magdala. This is roughly where we believe that Jesus kind of brought his disciples back together and said that we are going to get away from all of this. Where Jesus' destination is on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, kind of near the red marker, you'll see a town called Bethsaida. That is where Jesus intends on going. Now, he's got two choices. He can go by land and go from city to city all the way around to Bethsaida, or he can take, if you will, a shortcut across the Sea of Galilee to get to Bethsaida. Let me bring this home into real life, okay? Let's just say for... For, uh, for us today, our talking purposes, that after service today, we want to go up to Walker Road, and we want to get a burger at Red Robin. How many people like Red Robin? You with me? Okay. You have two choices on how to get to Walker Road. You can take 11 North, you can head into town, hop on 30, hop over to Walker Road, and eventually arrive at Red Robin where your dreams can come true. Or... The other side, if you really want that burger faster, you can hop over to Interstate 81 and bypass all that, the traffic lights, the traffic, and just kind of zoom up, hit exit 17, and you will be in burger heaven before you know it. This is kind of the decision that Jesus makes, is that, if you will, the Sea of Galilee is his Interstate 81. So he hops in a boat, gets in the HOV lane, and heads towards Bethsaida. The interesting thing that happens, though, is that the people in the towns along the shore see Jesus going. Now, remember, they had been doing ministry in all these surrounding towns when they went out two by two. So they see that Jesus is going that direction, so they said, Jesus is going that way. We want to go that way. And so they go from Magdala to Gennesaret to Capernaum and eventually make their way to Bethsaida. So when Jesus arrives at Bethsaida, having taken the shortcut, these people literally ran there, and there is a giant crowd waiting for Jesus and his followers. Now get this, Jesus is deeply grieving, he's tired, his disciples, his followers are tired, they desperately want this time to get away, to recover, to grieve, and there is this giant crowd awaiting them. I think it's within possibility that if I were them, I would be a little bit frustrated, like seriously, can you let me go, can you let me have some time away, but that wasn't Jesus' response. Jesus looked at the crowd and it says that he had compassion on them. He felt sorry for them. The Bible says that he felt like they were sheep without a shepherd. They need a leader. So he stops and gives them time. He welcomes them to himself. He starts teaching them about the hope of the kingdom of God, and he heals their sick. And he does this for a long period throughout the day, again, setting aside 
his personal desires and spending time with the folks that are there on the ground waiting for him at Bethsaida. Towards the end of the day, though, it's been a long day, and we find Jesus talking to disciples about this very thing. So picking it up here in Matthew chapter 14, it says this. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted, and it is already late. Fun fact, the word late here is really talking about that it is way past dinner time. So they're not just saying this is afternoon. This is very much into the evening. People are very, very hungry. They have not eaten in a while. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. I love this. So it's, it's like the disciples looked at this situation, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, but there's roughly, the Bible says there's 5,000 men that are gathered here. Now, if you had women and children, that's anywhere from 15,000 to 20,000 people that are gathered in front of Jesus. This is a ginormous problem. The disciples look at this and logically say, there is nothing that we can do there is nothing that we can do to fix this problem. So if we can't be the solution, then we'll just ship them off. They can figure out their own solution. I love how Jesus told them, no, they don't need to go away. You need to find them something to eat. Um, I, I was reminded back when I was an engineer, there would be a lot of times that people would come in and they'd want stuff designed and it would be crazy. It would be chaotic and it would be like, there's no way we are going to do this. This is, this is insane. And then you'd have a boss or supervisor that would come by and say, oh yes, you're absolutely going to do that. And I kind of get that impression from Jesus here in a very loving tone, like you don't need to send them away. We're going to find a solution for how that is to be. And I love how he takes his compassion and focus it back on the crowd that there is a way that this can be done. And it's very interesting that, again, even when they don't feel like there's a solution, that there is a solution there. How did the people feel that? How did the disciples feel, though, when they thought that this was going to happen? How do they feel, how do we feel like when we're in front of an impossible situation? Check this out. John chapter 6, verse 7 says this. Philip answered him, so one of the disciples says this, 200 denarii would not worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, denarii is a way of payment back then. So one denarii is worth one day's worth of wages or one day's worth of a paycheck. Put that in perspective to real life. In Franklin County, the medium income right here is about $25,000 a year. That roughly works out to about $98 a day. $98 times 200 days is roughly, give or take, $19,000 to $20,000. So Philip is saying that even if even if we had $20,000 in our back pocket that we could spend on these people, they would hardly get anything. Again, $20,000, 20,000 people, $1 per person, that is going to the dollar menu at McDonald's. They are not going to be filled and satisfied. This is not going to work. And I love it because as they are sitting here looking at this situation, they're saying, this doesn't make sense. There's nothing that we can do. But literally, they have Jesus standing in front of them and they miss this. They look at the situation, and they miss the Savior. And they, I think in our lives too, we come across the same thing, where all too often we say, well, Jesus is great, Jesus is wonderful, but what can Jesus actually do? Does Jesus go to work for me? Does Jesus pay the bills? Does Jesus take out the trash? Does Jesus solve the problems within my relationships? And we feel like it's separate, that like God's power is over here, but yet we have to figure things out on our own. And they miss this opportunity. So as they're looking around, this next thing kind of transpires, which changes the situation just a little bit. John chapter 6, verses 8 and 9 says this. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Five barley loaves. So these barley loaves would be a poor man's food. Um, the rich people would have had wheat bread. The poor people would have had barley loaves. And two fishes, these are dried or pickled, not much more than sardines. 
when Andrew comes with this, it's almost, almost like a joke. Like, this is what we've got, but what in the world is this going to do? Obviously, there are more mouths to feed than this can actually help. What are we going to do in this situation? How can we actually help out and make this problem go to pass? How can we bring the solution? What was in their hands was definitely not enough, and they recognized that they needed something more than that. They needed God to show up in an incredible way and do something. But I think in our lives, too, we get into impossible situations like this where we look at what's in our hands and we say, there's no way that's enough. There's nothing we can do. We want to do the right thing. We want to help out. We want to go the right direction, but we feel like there is nothing we can do. So what do we do in that kind of situation? What do we do when we're in a situation like the disciples? We know the right thing to do, but we feel like there is nothing that we can do. There's nothing in front of us. There's nothing of ourselves. What do we do in those situations? Simply put, I believe this is what God's trying to tell us, is that we are to be the miracle of God. We are to be the miracle of God. Now, you might say, that sounds great and wonderful, but that doesn't help at all, really. I mean, it just sounds like a nice phrase. I get it. The trouble is, is that of our own strength, we cannot be a miracle. We cannot be. Our own strength fails in the face of giant problems that are God's size. It does not work. And in fact, as much as we would want to work, we will never be able to meet the need because we ourselves are not satisfied. Let me explain this. In our lives, we have something that destroys our internal being. We call it sin. Sin is the things that we do that go against God. It's our selfish nature. It makes us do things that we want to do rather than do the things that God wants us to do. It actually separates us from God. But the unfortunate side effect of sin is that it never, ever satisfies. It's a void in your life that you are constantly filling and refilling, and it never is satisfied. What that results in in our lives is we don't feel like we can help anyone else because we aren't filled ourselves. And so we continually, because of sin, refill our lives with drives, desires, and dreams, and all these things that, that never fulfill. It's almost like we're drinking seawater. We drink seawater, you walk away, you're much more thirstier than when you began. And so we continually do this, and it's a giant problem because we cannot meet that need. It is impossible. No matter what we can do, we cannot meet our own need, and therefore, a lot of times, we feel like we cannot meet the needs of others. We need a miracle, but we cannot be the miracle ourselves. We need something else to happen. In the life of this story right here, the disciples need something else to happen. They are beyond their needs. They cannot meet this need of their own ability, of their own strength. Instead of their own strength, they need to transform it into something supernatural. And we see this happen here in John chapter 6, verse 10. It says this, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 number. There's that 5,000 number. Again, add women and children, 15 to 20,000 people potentially. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. This is incredible. Jesus, almighty God in the flesh, takes what was thought and overlooked as something impossible and makes it possible. He sits here and he prays over, he blesses it, he distributes it, and not only, not only is everybody filled and everybody has enough food, but there is stuff left over. It is incredible. God transformed what was a need into something supernatural that was happening directly there in front of their lives. It's incredible. In fact, fun fact, this uh, story that we find in the Bible happens in all four accounts of the life of Jesus Christ that's recorded in Scripture. It's an important story. And it's incredible, though, that you would think that people receiving this food would be like, wow, that is epic, that is awesome, that's fantastic, and they'd be good for a while. And they were for a while. A couple days later, though, the people come back, and guess what? 
They want more bread. They want more food. They were not satisfied. And as they have this discussion with Jesus, Jesus again shifts over from the natural to the supernatural and explains what is the real need that you are facing in your life. He says this in John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, what was going on here was Jesus was saying that the bread I'm giving you is not going to sustain. You need my bread. You need the the bread of life. You need me in your life. You see, if we are going to be the miracle of God, we need to receive the miracle of God. That is the first step. If we're going to be the miracle of God, we need to receive the miracle of God. When we were trapped in that loneliness where we were doing our own thing and that selfishness never satisfied, Jesus saw us directly where we were at. He saw that we were in need and his love drove him to compassion just like it drove him to have compassion on the crowd. Jesus got involved. He got out of his comfort zone and came to earth. We just celebrate this in communion. He came to earth and he took on himself our punishment. Now the punishment for sin, doing those wrong things, is eternal death. It's separation from God. And Jesus said, not today. He came to earth on your behalf because he loved you individually very, very much. He took on himself all of your sin, the things that are seen and unseen, the disgusting things, the things you do in private, the things that are outward that you wish you could take back, all those things Jesus took on himself and paid the punishment for your sin by dying in your place. But the story did not stop there because three days later, Jesus came back to life. And when he came back to life, he offered freedom and victory over the sin that was holding us down, that was holding us to our own strength. Now we can choose Jesus Christ as our source. And to make this easy, what God did miraculously is that when we turn to Jesus, we say yes to him by believing in him as our Lord and Savior by faith. God tells us a supernatural thing happens. God's spirit enters into our spirit, and we are able to live differently. We are no longer bound to our own strength. We literally get to tap into the supernatural. It's nothing magical or mystical or weird. This is the power of God that allows you to do the miraculous in your life that you would not be able to do of your own strength. This is what happens when we choose to receive that miracle of Jesus Christ in our lives. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it, but we definitely can have it in our lives and in our um, lifestyles. The beauty of this too is that when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, our provision becomes his priority. Our provision becomes his priority. We are his child and he will make sure that he's with us every step of the way and that he will provide along our path. We are never alone. The trouble is that we need to make a choice to obey God and to choose him as our source. And ultimately, guess what? We don't want to do that. It's not our natural tendency. Just like the people that got fed in this story a couple days later went back and said, hey, can we have some more? We forget about the supernatural God that saved us and is indwelt in us by the Holy Spirit. We forget about that and we choose any other source except God. A lot of times it's our own strength. And again, we come back saying, this is an impossible problem. What are we to do about this? But instead, if we choose God as a source by obedience, something incredible happens because the miracle can actually happen. I'm afraid that all too often in our lives, we get trapped looking at the lack in our hands. We look at the lack in our hands and we forget to look at the Savior standing right in front of us. We we forget to look at heaven standing right in front of us. What would happen if we took what was in our hands today and we said, let heaven touch it? Instead of us being the ones touching, we said, God, we want heaven to touch whatever we've got in front of our lives because we believe that you could do something with it. 
it changes everything. It changes your perspective entirely. Think about it. If you're facing a marriage crisis, a financial crisis, a job crisis, whatever it might be, all of a sudden, God is invited in the middle of it. That marriage crisis, you say, God, I don't know what to do, but here it is. I will work with my spouse. The finances, I don't know what to do, but here's the bank account. The job is here. I don't know what to do with that supervisor, but I give it to you. And we take all this and we say, God, let me not see lack. Let me see your love do something incredible let heaven touch what's in my hands. No matter how small or big we think it is. We might think we have something huge to offer. We might think we have very small to offer. I only have one week in a month that I could serve God. Great. Do your part. Get involved and see what God will do through you, being miraculous and being obedient to him. But it all comes down to that choice, receiving that miracle, again, by obedience. But here's the important thing about the miracles that God gives to you is that they are, newsflash, not just for you. They're not just meant for you. They are meant to fill you and overflow and be passed on to other people in your lives. We see this very explicitly shown in the story that we just talked about. And we'll look at another piece of it again, both from Luke and from Matthew. It says this, Then he told his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. I love the community there. They sit down in groups of community. Beautiful. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was satisfied. Do not miss this. Jesus takes the loaves and breaks them, gives them to the disciples. The disciples take that broken bread and give it to the crowds. The crowds take it and they give it to the next person down the line. There is this passing, this sharing of the miracle that actually takes place. Growing up, I used to see older, I know I'm going to date myself here, older Jesus movies that kind of demonstrate this miracle, and they tried to show it in video, and I understand they had, you know, probably limited funding and couldn't do it justice, but I always remember seeing this, like, Jesus praying over the loaves and fishes and kind of raising them up to over above his head in baskets, and when the baskets came down, they were overflowing with, like, loaves and fishes. We don't see that in Scripture. Let me ask you this, where does the miracle actually happen? It happens as it's being passed. Don't miss this. It's happening as it's being passed. I don't know if this is what it really looked like, but this is how I envision it. I've gotten this piece of bread in this line from Jesus' disciples, crowd to the next person line. And I break it off and I give it to the next person. And it's like it reappears in my hand. And I do it again and again. People are literally seeing this miracle happen right in front of them because the miracle is shared. Here's what I believe is true in our lives. A lot of times, you and I are missing the miracles because we are not sharing the miracles of God. What would happen if we took what God has given to us and we start sharing it with other people? If we are going to be the miracle of God, we need to literally share that miracle of God. It's interesting, too, to look at the kind of three different groups that affected this even before we get to the actual distribution. You have the group of individuals that made this lunch for this boy, be it his mother, his family, whoever, very unseen. They start it there. Then you have the boy that actually comes and says, here's my lunch. Here is all of my lunch. He gives it to Jesus. And then you see this distribution taking place. All these people are participating in the miracle of God. Here's what I don't want you to miss. You may feel that you're doing your part in the background and it's not even mattering. It is mattering for eternity. That one lunch had an effect on 20,000 people experiencing Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. You might be doing something in the middle and saying, God, I'm giving you everything I've got. I'm giving you everything. I'm being faithful and I'm not seeing the result. 
Trust me, God is there walking with you, turning what you think is the natural into the supernatural. And then this final concept of we've got to share that miracle. We have got to pass it on. It is never meant or intended for us to hoard it into ourselves. It is meant to be passed on so that, get this, more people can see the love of Jesus Christ and turn back to him. But wouldn't it mean that if I start giving away the miracles of God in my life, which, if we're being honest, we feel like we deserve, right? I mean, God, I've been a good person. Give me the miracles. We feel like, in our consumerist society, that we give away these miracles, that we are going to have less miracles in our tank, if you will. And we feel like that it's not going to be enough. We want to kind of hang on to them. We don't want to share them because we feel like if we do, that we're going to be left with less. We do not see that in this story at all. Check this out. In John chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, it says this. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, "'Gather the pieces that are left over.'" Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Miracles are never meant to be wasted. Miracles can't be wasted. In fact, there is no way, humanly, that we can outgive or overtake God's generosity. He calls us today to be faithful, to share that miracle, realizing that he can do abundantly more than we can possibly think or imagine if we only obey and trust him as the source instead of our own strength. I really believe, I really believe that we have miracles literally on the way for us in our lives, over your situations, over a variety of things that you are going through right now that God desperately wants to get involved with the supernatural with, but we are making the mistake of choosing our own strength instead of God's source. What would happen if we changed this? What would happen? What would it look like if we started getting involved? Let me give you a couple of ideas. If we started being quietly in the background preparing what God is going to do. It might affect lives now and for generations to come. If we just started generously offering Jesus everything we've had by faith, by trust, we could see needs like poverty in our city change. And again, by our example, other people would come on board and do the same thing. And then also, if we have people that are boldly going out and sharing that miracle, realizing that it's almost a joke, We're looking at five loaves and two fishes. How can this possibly do something? But we believe by faith that if we go out faithfully sharing that God can take that and can feed more mouths than we can possibly imagine. What would it look like if we took that shift to obedience in our lives, started receiving the miracles of God and sharing the miracles of God? And I believe that many of us today perhaps need to really just turn and believe it and see it. Just trust that God is going to do it. Trust that God is going to show up in your life. And I don't know what that looks like. Perhaps today you might be going through a situation, a health crisis, a diagnosis, a relationship crisis, a financial crisis, whatever it might be, and you're saying, God, I need a miracle. I'm telling you, today is the day that by faith you can receive that miracle from God. I believe by faith that God can come and enter and do an incredible work today down the road, whatever, but it all comes down to obedience by faith. What if we turned to God and said, yes, we're going to trust you, and we are going to expect and believe to receive that miracle? Would we see it? Or would we miss it? Would we stand there in front of the presence of Jesus? I get stuck looking at what's in our hands when heaven could come down and touch it, and do something incredible with it. 
maybe today that's your decision, that you need to receive that miracle of Jesus Christ. Maybe for the first time, trusting him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe receiving a miracle in your particular area of life. Or maybe it's the other that perhaps God has blessed you, even with the small. And you're saying today, I need to start sharing this. And it might make me uncomfortable. It's going to make me step out in faith. I'm going to give it all. Maybe that's a decision we need to make today. Say, God, we are all in. We're going to trust that what you have given to us is not going to stay here, but it's going to get passed on. And when it gets passed on, it's going to grow and multiply. And more and more people are going to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This city gets transformed, turned upside down by the love of Jesus Christ. We can start that today by decision to share what God has given us, no matter if we think it's small or large. Maybe that sharing starts with you today. And maybe you already know, you already know what that looks like in your life. It might be a conversation you need to have. It might be an individual you need to come alongside. It might be getting involved in some capacity. I don't know, but God does. And I challenge and urge you to obey what God wants you to do in your life, to share that miracle, because it can bring life change for generations to come. I want to give you an opportunity in a moment right now. We're just going to bow our heads and close our eyes. There's nothing super spiritual about this. This is just a quiet opportunity for you to have a conversation with God. And I want you to do that during this time. Don't miss out on it. If today you need to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you can do that. Believing by faith that I am separated from God by sin, I am trusting as Jesus as my Lord and Savior. For others, maybe you need to make that commitment that you are going to obediently obey and receive that miracle and that you're going to start looking at God as your source. For others, it might be sharing that with other people. Whatever it might be, you have that conversation with God right now. You make a plan with what he tells you to do right now. Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.